You take your Bibles and turn along with me to Habakkuk. Feel free to reference your table of contents again if you need to. Habakkuk chapter 1. We've been uh, looking at this little book, this minor prophet of Habakkuk. And we've given it the theme, title, Gospel Answers to Life's Toughest Questions. And for many people, one of the biggest and toughest questions of life is this. Why do bad things happen to good people? You've probably heard that before. You may have asked that yourself before. You may have been asked that. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why does God allow bad things into the lives of good people? Some people have written off God. They've written off the Bible. They've written off Jesus Christ because they don't think there is a sufficient answer to this tough question. But the truth is, the Bible does answer this question. The Bible speaks directly to this question. In our text this morning, the prophet Habakkuk essentially asks the same question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Habakkuk is a prophet of God living in Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. And as we saw last week, God has just revealed to Habakkuk that the Babylonians are being sent by God to invade Judah. And Habakkuk is left completely shattered by this information. How can this be? How can God use a wicked nation like Babylon, the Chaldeans, to punish a nation that is Far more righteous, Judah. I mean, Judah's better than the Babylonians. Far better. How can this be? Why does God allow bad things into the lives of good people? Well, let's look to God's word this morning and seek the answers. Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, and I'll read through chapter 2 and verse 4. Habakkuk, replying to God's answer, says this, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up the, those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net, and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore they rejoice and are glad Therefore they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net. 
Because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. And the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail, though it tarries. Wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Hear the word of the Lord. Please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you confessing that we don't always understand what you're doing in the world, that we have questions, big questions, hard questions, tough questions about why things happen the way they do in this fallen world. But Lord, this morning... We pray, most of all, even beyond having our questions answered, that you would increase our faith in you. Lord, that you would grow us in trust, knowing and believing that you are the God over all the earth, the one who rules and reigns, the one who is good and sovereign, and who always does what is good for us. Grow us in trust, Lord. Grow us in faith. Help us to cling to the truth we know to be true in times when we don't know the answers to what's happening around us. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why do bad things happen to good people? This is essentially the question Habakkuk is asking. It's important when answering a tough question like this, though, to begin by examining that question a bit more closely and by looking at this question's assumptions. Why do bad things happen to good people? First of all, this question assumes that there is a category of good people. The presumption is this, there are good people and they do not deserve to experience bad things. Well, the whole premise of the question is faulty. We know the Bible teaches us that there are no good people in any ultimate sense. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners, every one of us. We've all fallen short of God's best and God's design and God's glory. We've all rebelled against Him. We've all delighted in our sin. And then we learn from Jesus this truth that there are no good people. Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19 says that someone came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? What good thing shall I do 
And he said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. The rich young ruler wanted to establish his goodness. Jesus pushes back against this and he says, there's only one who is good. In Luke's gospel, Jesus also says, no one is good except God alone. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now what Jesus is doing here is not denying his own goodness. There is one good person, and that is Jesus. Sinless, perfect Jesus, who is truly good. Jesus is not denying his goodness, but he's challenging this young man's understanding of goodness. As though there is a, there is a, a line of goodness that human beings are able to cross over on our own strength. And we can achieve this category, this, this title of, of good. But only God is good. Only Jesus is good. God alone is truly good. God alone is holy and altogether good. Goodness as a moral category belongs only to God and not to fallen mankind. Not to any one of us. So there is no one who is truly good but God alone and the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we're not truly good, then what are we? Well, we're all sinners. And what do sinners deserve? What do rebels deserve? Sinners deserve judgment. Rebels deserve punishment. That's what we deserve. And yet God in His love and grace offers us not what we deserve through our sin and rebellion, but he offers us mercy instead through the gift of his son as a substitute and sacrifice on the cross for us. So the whole premise of the question, why do bad things happen to good people, is misguided from the start. Just by asking the question, we've got a problem. We've raised our own problem because we're assuming we're good. We always assume we're the good ones, right? Be that as it may, it's still a question that many people ask. And in its essence, it's a question that Habakkuk asked as well. And so in the process of seeking an answer to this question this morning, we're going to learn what to do when life goes wrong, when life gets hard. What to do when life goes wrong. We're going to see four steps for spiritually navigating the hard things in life together. All right, As we seek to answer that question Why do bad things happen to good people? Four steps for spiritually navigating the hard things in life. First of all, the first step, when life goes crazy and haywire and things happen that you didn't expect to happen and things you would have never asked to happen and things you wish had never even been thought of, what to do? First thing, begin by affirming what you know to be true about God. Verse 12 chapter 1. Begin by affirming what you know to be true about God. In verse 12, Habakkuk begins to speak again. He's responding to God's answer that came to him 
from verses 5 through 11 of chapter 1. And Habakkuk here in verse 12 is beginning to process the revelation that God is going to send the Chaldeans, that is the Babylonians, to sweep in and exact justice upon Judah because of its long-standing rebellion and disobedience. But this answer was not the answer to his prayer that Habakkuk was expecting. Not by a long shot. When Habakkuk prays as the book opens in verses 1 through 4, and he asks God why he seemed to remain silent and do nothing, even though injustice is everywhere, even though wickedness is seen on every corner, why does God remain silent? Why does he seem to do nothing in response to the prayers for deliverance that have come from Habakkuk and others? Well, he wasn't expecting God to answer his prayers by sending correction and justice through the hands of a far more wicked people, the Babylonians. For Habakkuk, this just did not compute. This does not make any sense. So Habakkuk here in verse 12 is having to regroup. He has been put on his heels He's been knocked off his feet by this revelation. He's trying to get back on his feet mentally, emotionally, spiritually. This is not the answer he was expecting. Now notice here in verse 12 what Habakkuk does. He says, are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Notice what Habakkuk does. In the face of the unthinkable, in the midst of a scenario that he could not have dreamed up, in an answer to prayer that he thought highly unlikely, unusual, and regrettable, what does he do? Verse 12, he recalls what he knows to be true about God. There's much that he doesn't understand. There's much that he doesn't agree with about what God has revealed. So he's leaning heavily on what he already knows, what is a settled certainty, what is absolutely clear in the scriptures about who God is. He begins by affirming the godness of God. He begins by affirming, reaffirming in his own heart and mind the truth of who God is. Are you not from everlasting? God is the eternal one. He had no beginning. He will have no end. He's eternal. He's the only eternal being. All other beings have had a beginning. But when the beginning began, God already was. There was never a time when God was not. He is the uncreated eternal one. God, as the uncreated eternal one, transcends all time, transcends all creation, transcends all epochs and eras, all nations and kingdoms, all rulers and authorities, all events and activities. 
Whatever has happened, whatever is happening right now, and whatever is going to happen, God stands over it, as all, over it all as the eternal ruler over all things. Next, Habakkuk refers to God as the Lord. Probably in your translation, Lord is in all caps. That's intentional by the translators because they want to communicate that this is the personal name of God. This is Yahweh. When you see Lord in all caps, it's Yahweh. The personal name for God. When God revealed himself to Moses and told him to lead the nation out of Egypt, in Exodus 3, 13, God revealed himself as Yahweh, as the Lord, the eternal, self-existent one. Exodus 3, 13 says, Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to go to the sons of Israel, and I'll say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What's his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am the great I am, the self-existent, eternal God. God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, all caps, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Yahweh. Yahweh, the Lord, is also the covenant name for God. Yahweh is the covenant maker, and he is the covenant keeper. God has made promises whereby he has sworn by himself, and he will do it. He made promises to Abraham to give him a land, a seed, and a blessing, and through Abraham to bless all the nations. This is Yahweh. Next, Habakkuk affirms that this eternal God, Yahweh, this personal God, is my God. And here, Habakkuk is affirming and reaffirming the personal nature of the relationship he has with God. This isn't someone else's God. This is my God. The God who has walked with me, the God who has revealed things to me, the God who has guided my feet through past times of trouble and difficulty and uncertainty, this is my God. God isn't just some abstract idea or a distant deity that has wound the clock of the universe and has stepped back to let things wind down. No, God is a personal, relational God. So much so that Habakkuk calls him my God. Habakkuk further affirms that God, Yahweh, my God, is my Holy One. My holy one. God is holy. That means he's without sin. He never does wrong. He never practices evil. He never sins. He always does what is right, what is good, what is in accord with truth, beauty. He's never guilty of wrongdoing because he's holy. 
my holy God. Whatever Habakkuk is about to go through, it isn't the result of God's wrongdoing, of God acting unjustly or sinfully or unrighteously. Whatever is about to happen, it's not because God is doing the wrong thing. In the midst of the storm that is about to take place in preparation for it, Habakkuk is tying himself to the mast of truth so he doesn't get washed overboard. He wants to anchor himself to God's truth. At the end of verse 12, Habakkuk refers to God as a rock. This is a term refers to God's unchanging character. God is a rock of refuge and salvation. Psalm 18 repeatedly refers to God as a rock. Listen to it. Psalm 18 too, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. It's right over there, Cheyenne Mountain, right? Pretty great refuge. Pretty amazing stronghold. You want to build a refuge and a stronghold that can withstand doomsday? Bore into the mountain, right? Deep into the mountain and find safety and refuge there. That's what God is pictured as here. Psalm 18.31 says, For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? There is no rock anywhere else. There's no refuge. There's no fortress that you're going to find anywhere else, in anyone else, but the Lord alone, because the Lord alone is the rock who can shelter us, defend us, and keep us safe. Psalm 18.46, that same psalm, The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock. And exalted be the God of my salvation. Based upon all of this, Habakkuk it concludes, we will not die. Because of what I know to be true about God, that he is the eternal one, the sovereign God, the covenant-keeping God. He's a personal God, a relational God. He's the holy God. He's my God. He's not going to utterly destroy Judah. He's not going to completely wipe out his people, whom he promised Abraham he would bless and multiply as numerous as the stars in the sky. No, this is not the end of the line for Judah. We will not die, but you, O Lord, have appointed them, the Babylonians, to judge, he says. God is going to use the Babylonians as the instrument of his judgment and correction. The Babylonians are going to be the paddle which God the Father uses to awaken the sensibilities of his children who in their stubbornness have rebelled against their father for far too long. When we're going through a time of uncertainty, when life gets hard, when we're going through something unwelcomed and unexpected, we've got to regain 
our spiritual footing of what we know to be true. We've got to tie ourselves to the mast of who God is and reaffirm those truths to ourselves. Speak it to yourselves. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher who was so effectively used by God in London during the middle part of the last century, was very fond of hiking. Listen to this helpful analogy he makes about this passage. He says, when going through times of uncertainty, disappointment, confusion, or great loss, we must first remind ourselves of those things of which we are absolutely certain, things which are entirely beyond doubt. Write them down and say them to yourself. Say this to yourself. In this terrible and perplexing situation in which I find myself, here at last is solid ground. When walking in the moorlands or over a mountain range, you come to bogs, Lloyd-Jones says. And the only way to negotiate them is to find solid places on which you can place your feet. The way to get across the morasses and the places in which you are liable to sink is to search for footholds. So in spiritual problems, you must return to eternal and absolute principles. And the moment you turn to basic principles, you immediately begin to lose your sense of panic. It's a great thing to reassure your soul with those things that are beyond dispute. When life gets hard, the first thing we need to do is reaffirm what we know to be true about God and His promises. Lash ourselves to the mast of his truth. We know he's in control. We know he is good. We know he is wise. We know he is for us. We know he hasn't abandoned us. We know he's working things for our good. We know his purposes are perfect and much more far-reaching than we could ever comprehend. Right? Do you have a view of all things? Do you sit in the heavens and can you look upon all creation and all mankind and all history and all of the future and know exactly where everything is headed and how it all fits together to accomplish one divine end? Of course not. But the Lord does. We know his purposes are perfect and his purposes are much more far-reaching than we could ever comprehend. I love that quote by Piper. It was actually just a tweet. He just threw it out there. But it, it has stuck with me. And it's this. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. That's right. So reaffirm what you know to be true about God. Retreat to the rock. Retreat to the fortress. That's the first step. All right, second step. Bring your questions and concerns to the Lord. 
having reaffirmed what you know to be true about God, having run into the fortress of, of God our rock and found safety there, having lashed yourself to the, to the mast of God's truth, now you can ask questions. Bring your questions and concerns to the Lord. Verses 13 through 17. Habakkuk has reaffirmed what he knows to be true about God, that he's eternal, that he's personal, that he's relational, that he's covenant-keeping, that he's holy, he always does the right thing. He never does anything wicked or unjust or unkind or uncaring or unloving. And having concluded that God does not intend to use the Babylonians to utterly destroy Judah, but only to correct and discipline his people, That's a good start, but it doesn't answer all of Habakkuk's questions. And so it is in life, right? In fact, it raises a few more questions. And these questions come out in verses 13 through 17. God is holy. So, therefore, verse 13, your eyes are too pure to approve of evil. And you cannot look on wickedness with favor. So why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? This doesn't make sense. I can't make the one truth correspond to the other truth. They seem to be in contradiction. God, God is absolutely holy, and, and Habakkuk believes it deeply. But that raises the question, why, God, do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why raise up the Babylonians and bless them with success and power and victory when they are so evil and wicked? Why would you do that? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? And that's really the question, right? That's it. Why don't you do anything when you see that the, the good people are suffering? Why are you allowing bad things to happen to good people? And seeming to bless the evil people with victory. This makes no sense to Habakkuk. In the verses that follow, Habakkuk describes the Babylonians and the way that they wage war as being like fishermen with a net. They cast their nets and they pull in everything the sea has to offer. And they pull it in indiscriminately. Whatever's in there, they're pulling it in. They're making the haul. They don't really even care. They cast their nets and they pull in everything. The old and the young, the strong and the weak, the evil and the good. And God has just revealed that he's going to deliver Judah into the Babylonian's net. So in essence, Habakkuk's question is this. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? It's certainly one of the great questions of life. Here are the other questions, essentially, that Habakkuk asks in this section. Why do you seem to bless and favor those who are wicked? Lord, why would you use those who are more sinful to punish those who are less sinful? Lord, why would you allow so many human beings to suffer and perish at the hands of such a wicked people? 
Will the wicked ever face accountability and judgment? These are the questions Habakkuk asks. These are the questions Habakkuk is seeking answers to. And through Habakkuk's example, we learn that God welcomes such questions. These are real questions of life. And God welcomes them. God doesn't rebuke Habakkuk for asking such questions or wrestling with such issues. God is patient with Habakkuk and he's patient with us and he welcomes us to come with him with all our questions and concerns. That is exactly who we should be going to. Seek the Lord. Ask him your questions. Ask him to give you answers. All right, that's the second step. The third step. Having asked our questions, thirdly, we seek answers to our questions from God's Word. Chapter 2 and verse 1. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Having poured out his heart with all of these questions before the Lord, Habakkuk now waits to hear from the Lord. Habakkuk isn't just cynically asking questions while not really being interested in God's answer. Habakkuk isn't some spoiled teenager that's asking questions he really doesn't want the answer to. Having asked the questions, now he seeks the answers. From the Lord. He believes the Lord will speak. The Lord will answer. And so he looks for it. Habakkuk is ready and eager to hear from the Lord. He pictures himself as a watchman. Standing guard atop the city walls. As a watchman on duty. He's alert and attentive. Scanning the horizon. Looking for God's answer. Expecting the approach of a messenger. Who brings words of comfort and and good news. This is so important. Too many times we ask tough questions in life, but we fail to really seek out answers. It's as though we're content cynically to ask the questions, but fold our arms as though there aren't answers to be had. Or we seek out answers in all the wrong places. We look to worldly philosophy. We seek to find answers by our own reasoning. Well, it seems to me that if God really cared about me, he wouldn't have let any of this happen. Well, that's not truth. That's not scripture. you've, You've made a God in your own making. You've not been guided by the truth. You've been guided by falsehood, whether from the world or from your own fallen thinking. We've got to look for answers in the right places. God provides all the answers we truly need. Now, that's key what I just said. He doesn't always provide all the answers. He provides all the answers we truly need. 
2 Peter 1.3 says that God's divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. How to live life and how to live life in a way that pleases God. God has granted us everything we need for life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him. How do we gain the true knowledge of Him? Through Scripture. Through His Word. Scripture provides the sufficient answers to life's toughest questions. Now, I want to give you a quick survey of what the Bible teaches us about how God uses suffering in our lives. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Here's the answer. It comes from Scripture. Another way of asking that question is, why do bad things happen to Christians? Okay, here are the answers. And by the way, I've put this in the church app under sermon notes. This is all extra material, and it's all going to be there. So you can check it out sometime this, today, this week, whatever, and you'll find it all there. So if you're struggling, I'm going to go through this quick, all right? There are eight answers to this, all right? So just listen. Eight ways God uses suffering. Why do bad things happen to Christians? Because God has purposes in the bad things. Suffering is never wasted. Suffering has a divine design and purpose for us. Here are eight reasons or ways God uses suffering. First of all, to display the work of God in our lives. Remember that story in John 9? Jesus passed by, saw a man blind from birth. Poor guy was born blind. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? There was a belief, a theology that said, oh, when bad things happen to you, it must be because you sinned or your parents sinned, and it's like a curse that's come upon you. And Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. This man was born blind for this very purpose that Jesus might heal him and might manifest the glory of God to all who saw it and witnessed it. God has purposes way beyond our ability to conceive of. Sometimes we suffer in order that the works of God might be displayed in our life. Second reason, to reveal his comfort and grace so that we might comfort others. To reveal his comfort and grace so that we might comfort others. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God, in allowing us to suffer, also shows us his comfort that accompanies our suffering. And that equips us to be able to comfort others and minister comfort to them. And so God uses us in the lives of others to comfort them. If you lived a stress-free, problem-free life where everything always went your way, and, and your friend was suffering and had difficulty, and you began to speak into their lives, they're like, what are you talking to me about? Nothing ever bad happens to you. Suffering allows us to speak in and, and give comfort and come alongside and have sympathy and empathy for those who are suffering. Third reason, 
to prove our faith. To prove our faith. 1 Peter 1.6 says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God allows suffering to prove our faith. That we are indeed walking by faith and not by sight. Another reason God uses suffering to shape us. He does it to shape us. Romans 5, 3 through 5. Not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Hard things harden us. They steal our resolve. They deepen our faith. And perseverance promotes proven character and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. God shapes us through suffering. Fifthly, God does it for our spiritual strengthening. For our spiritual strengthening. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, Paul says, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Suffering. A messenger of Satan to torment me to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I employed the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God causes us to suffer in order that we might lean into him and experience the strength that only he can give and that we only experience when we are weak through suffering. Sixthly, God uses suffering for disciplining unrepentant sin and producing holiness in us. Sometimes we need correction, and correction comes sometimes in the form of suffering, hardship. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. See this again in Hebrews 12, 7 through 11. God uses suffering sometimes to discipline us, to get our attention, to correct us, to train us. Seventh, God uses suffering, and we know that ultimately he uses it for our good. Romans eight twenty eight. we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God. All things, the good days and the bad days, the good things and the bad things, he uses it for our good. Can't always see what that good is. We may not know what that good is this side of eternity, but we can know it's always for our good. And then eighthly, sometimes we just don't know why God is using suffering. This is a catch-all. But it's the story of the Bible. It's true. We don't have that perspective of the one who sits in heaven We can't see it all. We don't know it all. And sometimes there's just not a sufficient answer for us. There's not an answer that explains exactly why it's all happening and what it's all for. This was the case in Job's life, right? As far as we know, Job never knew that there was this divine contest going on between God and Satan. 
As far as we know, Job didn't know any of that throughout his life. All he knew is that life was going from bad to worse, and it went there from zero to 60 in like two seconds. He lost everything. His possessions, his family, his health, his wife who said, curse God and die, Job. Sometimes we just don't know why. Job never knew. Sometimes we won't either. All right, seek answers to your questions from God's word. And then finally, the final step, fourthly, trust in God when the answers don't seem to make sense. Trust in God even when the answers don't seem to make sense. Chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. God answers Habakkuk's cries for help. Beginning in verse 2. God tells Habakkuk to write down the vision which he will see. He's to write it on tablets distinctly so that his word may be preserved and easily read and accessed by all. God wants this message written clearly and communicated broadly. Verse 3 teaches us about the trustworthiness of Scripture and the certainty of God's Word, that God's Word will be accomplished. God's promises are certain and they will be fulfilled. It hastens toward the goal. It will not fail. It may seem to us that there's a delay in the fulfillment of God's promise and the delay of His arrival for help, but God's promises and God's provision are always on time. There's never a delay in God's timetable. God is always on time. Aren't you glad that God doesn't have supply chain issues? He always delivers and He always delivers on time. Now look at verse 4. A key verse for the entire book of Habakkuk. Indeed, a key verse for understanding the entire message of the Bible. Verse 4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. The proud soul is puffed up. It's crooked. It's the case with the Babylonians. It was the case for the Judeans who were also unjust, many of them. But in contrast to them, the righteous live by faith. We begin by walking with God in faith. We continue to walk with God in faith. We trust Him. We walk by faith and not by sight. We trust God. We trust God with our souls. We trust God with our circumstances. We trust God with the bad stuff that's happening all around us. We trust Him. The righteous will live by faith. It's how we're saved. It's how we live. It's how we keep our sanity. Trusting in God and God alone. For He is worthy of our trust. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are worthy of our faith. We thank you that when life gets hard, that you are still there. That your promises are true. We can anchor ourselves to you, for you are our rock. Help us to do so. Help us to look in the right places for answers to our questions. Help us to run to you. And Lord, even when we don't get the answers we are hoping for, the answers don't seem to make sense to us, Lord, especially then, Lord, 
Help us to trust you. That your plan is being carried out and that your plans are good. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.